This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 2nd, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you'd open up to Genesis chapter 26, and that's where we will be this morning. I'm glad that you are here, and I'm glad to open up God's Word. We go straight through books of the Bible if you are new. And we're in Genesis right now, uh, chapter 26, and we'll be done someday. So 26 is where we're at. I'm going to read the first 25 verses, and then I will read the second chunk, if you will, um, partway through the sermon. So verse 1 says this, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I'll establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she is super cute. When, that's my translation, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife, and so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. And so Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. And so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, That water's ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servants, Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is God's Word. Now, last week, 
Uh, we began what is the third of four. So we tried to divide Genesis up into four books. So it was the third of fourth book that we're uh, beginning now. The first one was titled Bedrock, and you can see these all online. And that covered chapters 1 through 11 and really talked about the foundational miracle of creation, the designs of God, and how they were marred by sin. And as we got into the second book, which we titled Covenant, that covered chapters 12 to 24, and it really focused on God's covenant promise to a particular family and a particular man and his plan of redemption that came through that family and through that man's offspring, a man named Abraham. And our third book, as we are starting really last week, is titled Strive, and that's going to cover chapters 25 to 35. And this is the section of Genesis that will cover the story of Jacob, a man whose name will be changed to Israel after he literally wrestles or strives with God. Now, throughout the Old Testament uh, and in Genesis itself, God describes himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But interestingly, there's very little written about Isaac. Now, Isaac is the first and only son of promise uh, to Abraham. He wasn't the first son of Abraham. The first son of the flesh was a a boy named Ishmael, who was born to a servant, Hagar. But the promised son was Isaac, and he was a promised, and it took about 20 plus years for him to show up. But when he was born, uh, he was the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And when he was a teenager, this one son in whom all the blessings would come through and offspring would come through and would become a great nation, God commanded Abraham to go and sacrifice on a mountain which was a rather surprising commandment. But even more so, Abraham listened and immediately proceeded to obey this radical command. And Isaac, trusting his father, he was probably um, uh, you know, fairly young man, strong man. Uh, he must have agreed to be bound, uh, and he was laid upon this altar that Abraham had built, and he did all of that without a fight. And as Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice his son in faith, believing that if God was going to fill his promises, he would resurrect him, so he expected that he was going to kill him, God stopped him and said, don't kill your son. And he provided a substitute. And as the ram, who was the substitute, burned on the altar, we can only imagine how Abraham's faith, and the fire of it burned and grew, and perhaps Isaac's Faith ignited for the first time as he saw this all play out. But eventually Abraham dies and Isaac becomes the head of the family. And we see, at least in this story, he's not as respected as Abraham. Perhaps he's not as strong as Abraham. Most of the really little we know of Isaac and Rebekah from this chapter particularly, you'll see that it mirrors the life of Abraham and Sarah pretty closely. Isaac had two sons, we learned last week, uh, they're twin boys, Esau, the manly, hairy, hunting boy, uh, and then Jacob, the mama's boy who lies a lot. The history of uh, Abraham, Isaac's dad, and Jacob, Isaac's son, uh, actually accounts for more than half of the book of Genesis, even though Isaac lives longer than them both. With the exception of a few mentions of his name to kind of give background, 
in different parts of Genesis. The bulk of Isaac's life is in chapter 26. He gets one chapter. And if you read 25 and 27, you kind of realize that it's somewhat of an unnecessary speed bump between those two. In other words, you could take out 26 and the narrative would still make complete sense. Which God does that at times. And as we read, we're so apt to ignore passages like this, chapters like this, because they're not extraordinary. It's interesting that one scholar said that Isaac is the ordinary son of a great father and the ordinary father of a great son. Isaac's ordinary. No one likes to be ordinary. Everyone wants to be with extraordinary people and be extraordinary themselves, but Isaac is ordinary. And he gets a very little whisper, if you will, devoted to his life in Genesis. But through the brief story of who amounts to an ordinary man, we do see an incredibly extraordinary God. And let us not forget that that's actually what the Bible is always about. It's tempting to make much of men in the Bible, but really, the whole purpose of telling the story of God and, and seeing these rather ordinary, if not really broken men being used by God is to reveal an extraordinary God. It is direct us to Him and not to these men and make heroes of them. God is the only hero. But we do see in this particular story, God, a God who uses the sins of our fathers, uses our sin, uses the sin of those around us in order to move us to a place of worship, to increase our faith, even to birth our faith. Well, let's see what happens here. After the death of his father, Isaac, it says, settles in a, a place called Beer Lahai Roy. Try to say that five times fast. Meaning, the well of the living one. This was the place where Hagar, Abraham's servant, fled when they found out she was pregnant and Sarah started treating her harshly. She ran off and God met her there. And she went back and she ended up having Ishmael, Abraham's first son of the flesh. It's possible that Isaac didn't settle in dad's town, Beersheba, because he didn't want to live under dad's shadow. Who knows? But he's not living where he really grew up. He settled a little southwest. Ber Lahairoi is a city in the almost the southernmost city in the land of Canaan. It's on the border of Egypt, pretty close to it. And as he's living there, sometime after settling, famine strikes the land. Now the text makes mention of the famine of Abraham, as if to say this isn't the same famine that Abraham, but also reminds us of the time that Abraham first experienced famine. When Abraham was called out of his city, called out of, out of Ur where he grew up, and God said, I want you to go to the land of Canaan, a land you've never seen. I'm going to make you a great nation. He went, he obeyed, and took his family up there. And when he arrived, there was a famine. I want you to think about this, right? Abraham was obedient. Abraham responded to God's call. Abraham did what was difficult, right? I'm going to leave the comfort of my home, comfort of my family, security, what I know, and I'm going to go on mission with God and do His work, and he shows up, and it's a barren wasteland. In a very real sense, his obedience to God's 
word, his obedience to God's call, led him directly into an unfruitful wilderness, which was rather unexpected. We expect when we obey and, and listen to God's call, it's going to you know, be a flourishing Garden of Eden and full of fruit. Abraham did exactly what God told him to when he ended up in a place of wilderness with no fruit and no water and no nothing. But it's exactly where God wanted him to be. But when the famine came, Abraham, when he experienced it, he looked around and said, no water, no food, let's get out of here. He didn't check with God, but he trusted more in his own eyes, in his own mind, in his own heart, and he fled the barren place that God had told him to live and went south to Egypt. And now there's another famine in another generation, and Abraham's son Isaac is faced with the exact same Temptation. The question is, what is he going to do? As was, or as did his father, he goes south or is thinking about going south to Egypt, away from where God told him to be. We know he's thinking that because God shows up and has to tell him not to do it. For the first time, God had appeared several times to Abraham, but for the first time, he appears to Isaac and he says, I know what you're thinking, Isaac. Don't do it. Don't go south. Dwell in the land that I've told you. Stay put. Now, interestingly enough, Isaac was not alive when Abraham went south to Egypt. I'm sure their stories have been told, but he didn't learn that from watching it. Interestingly enough, he is naturally just like his dad. He is naturally just like his dad. And what I find interesting is in, when famine hits, and famine figuratively speaking, right? When famine hits, when difficulty hits, we are so apt to naturally default to that mode that we just are. And it's often something that's passed down by our parents or those who raised us not even thinking about it. It's just our default mode, and famine and difficulty usually brings that out. Famine is that time or place, figuratively, where, where life dries up. It's that time of starvation, right? It's that time of, I, I feel like I'm not getting any food or malnutrition, I'm not getting enough, or possible death. I'm going to die if I don't drink. I'm going to die if I don't get. I'm going to die. It's difficult. Egypt is, is another place, but it's more than that, right? It's that place that appears fruitful. It's that place that, that looks better. It's that, that place that seems to make sense. That place that promises salvation away from that hell you're currently in. That's famine. And that's Egypt. But Egypt represents even more than just another place. In many places in the Bible, it's symbolic of the way of the world. It's symbolic of the path of disobedience. It's a place outside of where God promised to bless and where He even promised to be. So when Abraham was tempted, it's interesting that God didn't stop him. Famine happens. That's it, going to Egypt, and God doesn't say a word. Never says, whoa, 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 
I told you to stay. He doesn't say a word. He lets him run deep into the world. He lets him go down the path of disobedience. In truth, God here wants Isaac to trust his words and to fight his natural instincts. His natural instincts to flee what's difficult and to run from famine to find something's better. And sometimes we learn this by God allowing us to actually follow our instincts like he allowed Abraham. Allowing us to learn from our mistakes because as you see Abraham go through this journey where, all right, you're going to do this, and he disobeyed and he disobeyed. He had a lot of difficult experiences, but he came out in a way where he found faith in God and trusting in God. And so there's times where God allows you to do that. And then there's other times when he stops you from doing such things. He prevents you actively from going into the path of the world. Either way is fine. Because his whole goal is to get you to a place where your faith comes alive. And God wants us to learn from our Father's faithfulness and our Father's unfaithfulness. But more than that, He wants to build in us a faithfulness of our own. And that's exactly what Isaac is doing. And sometimes building that faithfulness requires famine. Requires a bit of starvation. Requires some difficulty. Now, Isaac had already journeyed north from where he was going past the city of his father to the city called Gerar. And the city, actually the name means dragged away, which we'll see makes a lot of sense as his journey continues. Even though he didn't go to Egypt, he did go somewhere. He went north instead of south and he didn't go home. He settled in this Philistine city. It's most likely the capital city. And it's led by a ruler, a king named Abimelech. We've heard of Abimelech before. Abimelech was uh, the same guy, at least the same title, like Pharaoh, that dealt with Abraham, his father. Likely the son of that king, but it could be the same king. And that king had originally made an oath with Abraham. And the oath and the agreement was, look, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to be in a relationship. I love you, you love me, we'll get along, everything will be fine. So in Isaac's eyes, this was a safe place to be. But we see as he goes into the city, he's pretty darn scared. Like his father before him, he is worried in the exact same city. He is worried that the Canaanites will kill him because his wife is super cute. And so he concocts the same plan. Again, he was never alive when Abraham had gone through this, but he is naturally thinking like his dad, naturally feeling like his dad. We're going to be like our dads and our parents sometimes. And that's not all good. It's not all bad. It's not all good. But he goes with this natural instinct. He says, I got an idea. Why don't we tell him my sister, right? So he says, oh, my sister. She's my sister. They won't kill me. So let me just be real clear about one little side point that's really important, and that is this. No matter how difficult the situation is, no matter how difficult the circumstance you find yourself in, sinning is never the only option. Never. But that's where Isaac finds himself. Oh, I've I got to sin to get out of this. I, I, I want this so bad, which in this is his own life preserved. I'm willing to sin to make sure that happens. 
Sinning is never the only option. And even though Isaac didn't sin like his dad and go to Egypt, we see that he did sin like his father and he lies. Tells everyone else, my sister. And last time that happened, when Abraham lied about Sarah, Sarah was taken in by Abimelech and then everyone got diseases. Right? God came in and said, I don't think so. Struck them all so nothing bad would happen. This time God doesn't do anything. And instead, as the king is you know, relaxing on his veranda, looks down and sees Rebecca and Isaac pretty much making out in the alley. It's like, oh wait, they're not brother and sister because that would be weird. What is going on? Isaac, get in here. She's your wife. No, she's not. I saw you guys cuddling. She's your wife. Yes, she is. Why would you lie like that? Why would you bring that kind of guilt upon us? And then he says, all right, no one touch him. No one touch this man. No one touch this woman. I give them my royal protection. And you think, wow, that's what sin resulted in? Fantastic. Remember, God is always at work. And even though he is silent, it seems, in this, he is not inactive. And he is working this all so that he can do something with Isaac. And I would argue the same thing he's doing with all of us. There's sometimes we look and we go, where is God? He's there. Just because he's not screaming at you like some junior high girl with unlimited texting minutes, it is, he is there, active, working, doing something. And so this protection happens. And because he has protection, he has the opportunity to grow his family. And it says that as he spends his time in there, in one year, hundredfold, 100% of what he had is produced. And it actually goes as far to say that God blesses him. So God is now blessing him and making him prosperous. In fact, he becomes very wealthy and very powerful. Now, there are those, and I think wrongly so, who argue that God's prosperity is a direct result of godly living. Um, there's a whole theology built on that. It's called prosperity theology, and it's a lie from the devil. Interestingly enough, Isaac ain't a good guy, and he certainly hasn't been living godly in this place. And yet he is blessed, and yet he has prosperity. In truth, I believe all blessing, all prosperity is from God, and if we're honest, there have been many ungodly individuals who have been made very great by God. So we have to ask ourselves, not, well, gosh, what do I do to get prosperous? Or what do they do to get We ask ourselves, what is God doing? And why is he doing it? Never forget what the Bible says wealth is in this world, right? Solomon, the wealthiest there was, really, he says, it's all meaningless. It's vanity. It's all meaningless. And of course, it's easy for those who are prosperous to say that, it seems, right? Yeah, so say you. If I won the lottery, I'd be saying that, right? Only, it seems like those in prosperity can say that because those in poverty feel like, yeah, right. If I had money, everything would be better. I'm telling you, that's not the case. Prosperity and poverty are tools of God to accomplish His plan. They are both of the Lord. Prosperity and and poverty. And he will bring you 
prosperity or poverty if it is the best way to accomplish His plan for your life and for the life of others. God-given prosperity is often God's way of moving you, as is God-given poverty. And that's what we see with Isaac, right? He gets wealthy. You're like, man, what a blessing. It is a blessing of the Lord, but guess what happens? Lots of bad stuff as a result. In fact, he gets so wealthy and so powerful, the text says in verses 17 to 22, that the Philistines begin to envy him. They became so angry by him just being there and then watching him over the year grow in wealth and power, they start filling up all the wells of his dad whom they had agreement with. And what they would do, like these are wells where Abraham had ownership of. So they're backfilling him so he has no more ownership and so his sheep and, and his herds can't, can't have actually water to live. So they're trying to basically starve him out. But Isaac being the really aware guy, doesn't pick up the hint that he's not wanted. And so Abimelech has to actually come and say, look, can you get out of here? He literally says, go away. Leave. You are way too powerful. You are way too wealthy. We don't want you here. Leave. And so Isaac does. Very slowly. There's a valley going out of the city. And he starts moving his family and his herds and his people out away from the city. And as he moves into the valley, he starts to excavate the wells that were filled, the wells that his father had dug, and he begins to name them again. And this isn't purely pragmatic, right? It's not just, well, we need water to survive. It's actually um, an authoritative one. Every well he digs or redigs is making a claim of ownership of that land. This does not make the Philistines happy. They filled the wells so that he would leave, and as he redigs them and water starts to appear, they show up. And they go, whoa, 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 that's ours. That's our well. And so, the first time he does that, he says, okay. And he names the well, if you were to look in the Hebrew, the well of contention. And then he moves on. He moves a little further south. And he redigs another well. And water comes up. And the Philistines show up again and say, no, 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 no. That's ours. Okay. I'm going to call this the well of hatred. And then he goes further south. And he redigs another well. And this time, they don't show up. They say, oh, you can have that one. That's yours. And so he calls it the well of room. The well of space. Because now they're not bothering me. In the midst of contention. In the midst of hostility. Using the sin of those around him, God slowly moves, or dare I say, drags him away from Gerar to the place where he wants him to be. You know, it's interesting, when we get contention, relational contention, or difficulty in life, or hostility, or even hatred, we always imagine that's not of the Lord. We always imagine like, oh, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Why would you think that? According to the Bible, much of that contention and the hostility that began with prosperity is actually God's means of moving you in a way you never would have moved before. 
Imagine if Isaac never would have prospered to the extent that he did. Imagine if you just kind of like maintained, I mean, oh, everyone got along, we got, he never would have left. He never left, that, but God prospered him. That brought hostility, and then people sinned against him so that he would move in a particular direction he never would have moved otherwise. Instead of looking at all those difficult things in our life and going, why, get me out of this, Lord, maybe we should pause and go, Lord, what are you doing here? And not fight it as much as we do. He's being moved, and Isaac particularly, he wanted him back home. The place that God wanted Isaac was to be in the hometown of his father, Beersheba. And if you look at the names of the wells as, as it moves through, which is something we probably wouldn't do, but I'm weird and so I do that. It probably has it in the notes of your Bible. It tells you the names or the meaning of the names. Of, uh, he named it, you know, Sitnek and stuff like that. It'll tell you. This is the progression, right? He starts off at the well of the living one. And then he goes to the, um, it's not really a well, but I'll call it the well of envy, right? Well of prosperity, well of envy. Then it goes to the well of contention, and the well of hatred, and then the well of room or space, which makes you really lonely. But then the last one he ends up in Beersheba is the well of the oath. The well of the oath, the well of the promise, the well of the covenant. This was the place where Abraham had actually settled down. This was the place where Abraham had planted a tree and he'd worshiped the Lord until the day he died at the ripe age of 175. This is where Abraham had actually made a covenant with old king Abimelech, the city that God has just dragged Isaac from. And ironically, at this place, when Abimelech came to make a covenant, Abraham brought the idea of like, hey, you guys have been taking my wells. It's a replay of almost the exact same thing. But the reason that Abimelech says he comes to Abraham in this place to make a covenant with him is this word. He says, I've come because I see that God is with you in all that you do. Now, when Isaac steps foot in Beersheba, and I say steps foot because you see in verse 24, it says the Lord appeared to him the same night. It makes a point to say the same night. When he walked in Beersheba, the Lord appeared to him for the second time. And it's at the well of the oath in this place where God reminds him of the oath that he gave to Abraham, his father. And he says three important things. The first thing he tells him, like, look, and this is how God always reminds of the covenant. He kind of talks about who I am first. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. And then he says, I am with you, Isaac. Not just your dad, not just his family, but I'm with you and I'm with your family. Remember what Abimelech said, Clearly, God is with you in all that you do. And what is God trying to communicate to Isaac? I am with you too, Isaac. I am with you as I was with your father. And even though Isaac was the promised son of faith, and he knew that, even though Isaac was the one laying on the altar and saw how serious and faithful Abraham was, Isaac needed his own faith. He had to learn what it meant for himself to trust in God's faithfulness and not his own. 
And so what does he do in response to God showing up and saying, I'm with you, Isaac. I'm with you just as I was with your father. I'm going to be with your children just as I'm with you. He builds the first altar he's ever built. Every other altar that had been built had been built by Abraham. And he'd worship with dad. All right, dad, lead us in worship. And Abraham builds his own altar. And he worships the Lord and leads his family in worship for the first time. And then he does something else, interestingly enough, because there in Beersheba, there are plenty of wells there that Abraham has already dug. He pitches his tent, and he begins to dig a new well. Put that on the shelf for a second. If you turn in Genesis 26, the last part I'll read to you, and we'll close it up. Verse 26 of chapter 26, the last nine verses or so. It says, after this, after he had made the altar and worshipped, he'd settled in Beersheba, he was there, it said, when Abimelech went to meet him from Gerar with Hazuthath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly, the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. So you are now the blessed of the Lord. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early, exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. And that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And this last little verse here, which seems meaningless, but it's not. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. See, in time, Abimelech and his men come to Isaac, and surprised, Isaac says, uh, what are you doing here? You guys like hate me and kick me out of your city. And Abimelech responds by saying, the Lord is with you. Let's make a covenant, right? We won't hurt each other. We've treated you so nice. I mean, I know we backfilled all of your wells and we kicked you out and we kept taking stuff from you, but yeah, we've been nice to you, right? See, the reality is, even though Isaac's been mistreated, even though Isaac is actually more powerful now, even though having some kind of agreement with them is not going to benefit Isaac in any way, he shows grace. Sounds a lot like Christ. Isaac has become a man of faith who trusts the Lord more than he trusts himself. And he prepares a feast for Abimelech. Makes a covenant. And he sends them all off in peace. And in that very moment, it says, that same moment, the servants show up and say, we got water. We got water. Still been a famine going on. We got water. Isaac's story began with fear and ends with faith. It began with chaos and it ends with peace. It began with famine and it ends with water. And I think that there are really three simple lessons that we learn. And it's a story that's intended for us to, to grow in our own faith journey. So let me give you three basic quick things. Number one, God wants to move us from 
excavating old wells to digging new ones. You see, we need to learn from the faith of our fathers, but as I heard in an interview lately, God doesn't have grandchildren, He just has children. And what I mean by that is, we need to not invent new wells, but dig new wells for ourselves. Have some ownership of our faith. Confess our own faith in Jesus Christ. We are not going to miss out on God's promises because of our family's unfaithfulness and their mistakes. And we are not going to enjoy the blessings of God's promises based on their faithfulness. We must learn from both, but we must do more than just live in accord with what our parents taught us. We must learn God's promises for ourselves. We must believe them ourselves. We must live them ourselves. Isaac needed to own his own faith. And he does just that. But more than that, and I think hugely important and something that you would totally skip. God doesn't just want to move us from excavating old wells to digging new ones. He wants to move us and take us from wandering to settling in one place. Now, why would I say that? Well, this is a lesson for anyone here that might be dissatisfied with ordinary. If you're not careful, that dissatisfaction can lead to wandering ceaselessly for the next best thing. And you become a revolving door of relationships and churches and jobs and other things. You see, Abraham lived to be 175 years old, but for many of those years after he left his original city of Ur where he grew up, he spent most of his life, as you read through the chapters, wandering from place to place, moving and moving, and God didn't instruct him to move constantly. I began talking in the initial statements about how ordinary Isaac was. And that verse there at the end in 34 is not meaningless. It gives us some really indi clear indication. You see, Isaac, the Bible tells us earlier, that married Rebekah when he was 40. It also tells us it took about 20 years and then the twins were born. So there, he's 60, right? And after Esau was 40, when he turned 40, he got married. So at the end of chapter 26... How old is Isaac? 100. Good job, math people, right? He's 100 years old. But we know as we read further that he lives to be 180 years old. But at the very beginning of chapter 27, keeping track, we're in 26, the very beginning of 27, it says he's about to die. Which means in the space between 26 and 27, of which we read absolutely nothing, is 80 years. 80 years of ordinary? 80 years in one place. He died in Beersheba. 80 years of faithfulness. Ordinary, good old-fashioned faithfulness in one place. There is something beautiful and powerful about faithfulness for 80 years in one place. I don't know how many of you are struck by it, but I am always encouraged by those who have been married for many years 
I pick out the Glovers. I know you guys have been married, what, 50 years? Oh, how long have you guys been married? 37. Man, there's goodness in that. And I bet they would tell you that, like, well, for the last 50 years, it's been extraordinary every year, right? No. Sometimes it's ordinary. Sometimes many years of ordinary in the midst of extraordinary things, but we hear nothing about Isaac's life for 80 years. There's nothing extraordinary to report. There's just ordinary, good old-fashioned faithfulness, and 80 years later, we know he's faithful because he's blessing his sons and telling them to believe in the promises of God. There is goodness in being in the same place for long term. Goodness in being in the same church for long term. We're only three and a half, we'll be four years in January. Gosh, I pray that we are here together for 20 years, for 30 years. Because there's goodness in that. There's strength in that. There's value in that. Even if we don't do anything amazing and extraordinary, we're just faithful. Faithfully serving. Faithfully loving. Faithfully preaching. If I could faithfully die in the pulpit at like after preaching for 30 years, that'd be an awesome story for my kids, right? Yeah, he died preaching like, love Jesus! That'd be awesome! Just ordinary faithfulness. We're always looking for something amazing and as a result, we have a culture now of people wandering from church to church and job to job and relationship. Where can I find something amazing? How about just ordinary faithfulness of one place 80 years? That's beautiful. That's Glorious. And guess what? That 80 years of plain, old, ordinary faithfulness was enough for Isaac to be recorded in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And the only thing he's recorded is, I passed on the promises to my sons. That's enough. That's enough. But lastly, and most importantly, God wants to take us, I think, from famine to feasting in the place where we're at. As a people who live in this world, we recognize literally that water is a necessary part of our lives. We can't survive without water. Animals can't survive without water. Plants can't survive without water. Basically, life cannot survive without water. So figuratively speaking, when life dries up, it's very tempting to go on a search for water. It's very tempting to run from those barren places, those difficult places. It's very tempting to even sin in order to avoid what you think is going to be certain death. Famine, if we take the story of Isaac to be true, is not God's way of moving us to another place. I believe it's God's way of teaching us to trust Him that we might find water in the place where we're already at or should have been. So we can endure any earthly famine. Any earthly famine because there is one, Jesus, who experienced the ultimate famine for us. The one who was completely starved of glory for us. One who was killed by men who envied His goodness for us. Jesus is the greater Isaac. And like Isaac, right? He was mistreated willfully. And even though he was more powerful than anyone, that he would not actually benefit from relationship with us, he made peace with us through his sacrifice, through his death, and through his resurrection. So when we find ourselves dying of thirst, 
The answer is not to go looking for water that will, given enough time, dry up. The answer is to draw from the eternal well of Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us this very thing as he's sitting next to a young woman at a well in John chapter 4. And as she draws water and he asks for a drink, he tells her this, that everyone who drinks of this water, water of men, water of the earth, water of whatever idol out there that might satisfy you or save you from the hell you think you're in, it will not satisfy. You will be thirsty again, he says. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, ever be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You won't need water, water outside of yourself. There'll be water springing up that what? Helps you to endure any famine. And not just to endure, thrive in it, right? Not just survive, thrive. Famine is not God's way of moving us to another place, but of helping us find and trust Him and get water in the place where we're already at. This table right here is the most important part of our service. And we say that, but we truly mean it. This is where we come, and guess what? We're reminded of two things. Number one, the famine of sin that we all found ourselves at one time or another where we were starving for satisfaction, starving for meeting, starving for hope. And that was God's way of moving you toward Him. And this is the feast He has prepared for us. This is the feast that He's prepared for all those who find their satisfaction, their joy, their meaning, their hope, their security in Jesus Christ. For those who believe that Jesus actually died for sins that they've committed, that they're guilty. In fact, they're guiltier than ever admit but you're also more loved than you could possibly imagine. He says, come and feast. For those who have experienced famine this week, for those who have experienced hostility, thinking like, this is not of God, maybe it is to move you closer to this table where you can find where you will truly be satisfied and you truly be content even in the midst of the difficulty you find yourselves in, where faith really is born. I pray that you'll enjoy this with us. Let's pray.